0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. We have a
1: choice then as a country. Are we just going to be a user of everybody else's technology or will we create some of our own that we can export to others? If we don't get a fair cut of this sort of wave of technology companies growing, we'll have a demonstrably lower standard of living in Australia. There's just no question.
0: Serial digital entrepreneur Daniel Petrie loves to spend money. Well, let's rephrase that slightly. As co-founder and partner of Airtree Ventures, Daniel Petrie has now attracted over $600 million in funds under management. That's other people's money that he and his team then invest in a number of world-class companies, mainly in technology and software, that have no less than the lofty aims that they're set to change the world. Daniel Petrie and his co-founder have built Airtree Ventures into one of Australia's largest venture capital companies in just six years. Airtree Ventures spends its client funds to invest at the beginning of the startup's journey. That way, according to Petrie, he helps foster lots of entrepreneurs and build lots of great companies, hopefully, rather than just creating one. With deep experience in the digital space over the past three decades, Daniel Petrie knows just how hard life can be for a tech startup. He worked for Bill Gates at Microsoft in the US in its heyday of the late 1980s, early 90s, and he then launched a startup called eCorp inside a massive media company back here in Australia for Kerry and James Packer. He shares some sobering truths on what artificial intelligence and machine learning mean for our economy, but also the stark reality facing Australia if we don't confront and embrace our digital future. Daniel Petrie's also faced family tragedy, and he's tried to work out some work-life balance along the way, becoming even a best-selling author, would you believe, on How to Be a Better Father. Daniel Petrie, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, Helen. Lovely to be here. Now, you have been really a leader in the tech industry, both in Australia and overseas, for something like three decades. Yes, sadly. Yes, (laughs) don't want to be too pinpointing that. But we'll go back in time a little bit later. But now you're a venture capitalist. Yes. You co-founded Airtree Ventures. Yes. What is Airtree
1: Ventures? So we're a classic venture capital firm, which means we... Accumulate capital from investors, um, from high net worth individuals, and also institution super funds, and then we invest in startups and we help those startups grow, and hopefully at some point those startups then either list on the stock exchange or somewhere, or they are sold with their decision to sell to a larger company, and there is money made for the founders, for their employees, and for our investors.
0: So, do you back them at the very beginning?
1: Yeah. Well, across the board. So we have a a number, most at the very beginning. Most of our investments are at the very beginning. Some investments, we come in what they call series C or later, which is slightly later stage. Yeah. But generally speaking, even the later stage, those businesses are not profitable. They still have a high risk associated with them. So really our whole investment portfolio is risk. It's all about risk, high risk, because most startups don't succeed. And they're in the tech space as well. That's your focus? Yeah. So-
0: Is that even riskier? Than anywhere uh, else? Or in fact, is it more certainty now?
1: Look, I think there's a degree of certainty in the sense that technology is going to change every job in every country, in every company, everything. I mean, so so it, it is, yeah. you can't get away from the fact that technology is going to fundamentally disrupt everything that we do, whether, you, whether we like it or not. Now, having said that, just because you're a technology startup doesn't mean you'll be successful. So most technology startups do fail. We invest in technology startups and primarily uh, companies that are based on software because my co-founder Craig Blair and I and all the team have worked in software companies, so we understand how software companies are built. We do a tiny bit of investing outside our domain experience, like in some hardware areas, but really we're mainly focused on, on areas we understand because we want to help the companies build part of our job is not just to invest the money It's to be there with the founders and work with them to build the organizations and you can only do that
0: if you've built organizations before and you know yeah. how that works and you have which we'll get to yes. but so you now have a couple of vc funds is it still two you've got a core fund and an opportunity fund well we've fund? actually got
1: we've actually raised five funds so we started with a fund we raised a 60 million dollar fund uh, back in 2014 We actually raised $80 million and gave twenty million back because we thought we had too much money. And we didn't want to have- Wow, how come you gave it back? Well, we were worried that we couldn't invest the money well. And so we thought if we have too much money, we'll be motivated to invest faster and make some bad decisions. So we gave some money back. That ended up being a bad decision because the cadence of good startups coming through was much higher than we expected, and I can talk about that in a second. Then we raised two funds about three years later. One was a core fund of $125 million, an opportunity fund of 125 million. And the opportunity fund basically invests on top of the core fund when the core fund runs out of capital in certain businesses, lets you extend the investment in companies, also lets you invest in companies that don't fit the criteria for what is a a technical term, but ESVCLP, early stage venture capital limited partnership, which is a government design of these funds. And then we raised just like last year So that's like
0: a pot of money over well, to the side well, that yeah, you can yeah, use, but yes. you don't always use exactly it. Exactly right.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And then we had when we did that again, we raised late last year another core opportunity fund, core fund and opportunity fund of another three hundred and fifty million dollars. So we've got about six hundred and something million dollars under management at the moment. Yeah. Since 2013,
0: 2014, thirteen, twenty fourteen, you've raised that much money? Yep. That's very impressive, Daniel. Yeah,
1: okay, look, it's, it's great for us, but it's also great great for the industry. There are a few other firms who've raised similar amounts of money. So Blackbird Ventures is a great firm. Square Peg Ventures is another great firm. Well, so they've all it, raised, yeah, la- yeah Paul's, yeah. raised money. So the good news, I think, is for the Australian startup communities, not just one fund, nor one company. There are a lot of funds raising money. They're investing well and helping grow lots and lots of companies.
0: So finally, venture capital
1: has really arrived on the Australian scene. It, it side. has, yeah. We had a few sort of false starts, but it has finally arrived. I think the next three to five years will be the telling point in the sense that a lot of money has been raised. You go back to, to 2012 and about $100 million was raised in venture capital. Last year, about two billion was raised. So a lot of money's been raised. Now the question is, can that money be deployed in an efficient way to provide returns for investors so they'll play again? Yeah, that's really and the game. And also
0: that it's not wasted money, that it's not backing companies that just do stupid things. Yeah, look, even I, if you do get a return,
1: I yeah, mean, look, as a society,
0: think, you want to look at that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, true.
1: Yeah, so we, when we don't we don't invest in things that we find ugly so gaming we would never invest in online gaming or any sort of gaming we just
0: why is that ugly in your term is that another word for distasteful
1: yeah i agree with paul keating that gaming or gambling is a tax on the poor (laughs) i don't think that there's any role for it in our society that's my view so you know i would never put a dollar behind any casino gaming company i just think it's abhorrent because the people who tend to spend the most money are not high rollers. They're the people who can least afford it.
0: Mm. So
1: we don't do that. We obviously won't invest in any sort of weapons or anything that that we think is ethically not right, we will not invest in. And we've got that in our documentation. So it's not just a sense of what we think. We actually said to our investors and we don't invest in payday lenders. We would never do that. You can make a lot of money being a payday lender. I think that's abhorrent. So I don't. we wouldn't do that. So we're lucky.
0: Well, we'll get to the point where you did work for PBL yeah, and made them yeah. a lot of money and I think yeah. they invested it in yeah, gambling and yeah, yeah, casinos. Yeah. But anyway, that's that's <laughs> for another part of the interview. <laughs> so why would super funds, super funds in particular, they're very different to high net worth individuals, yes. that's your own money, et cetera. Yes. Why would a super fund who's got, yours and mine and, you know, everybody's retirement incomes. Yes. Why would they invest in venture capital funds?
1: I think any investor, whether it's a super fund or an individual, you'll have a – if $100 of your money is invested, you'll have a range of places to put that money because you're looking for a mixed return between very low risk, low return money, so in a bank account or a term deposit. But if you have put all your money in a term deposit – that won't do very well for you over the long period of time. On the other end of the spectrum, you have very speculative equities, which can do very well, but also can have bad years. So it's about a mix. And generally speaking, there's this sort of group of higher risk, higher return asset class called alternative assets. And in there are things like PE funds, private equity funds, hedge funds, venture capital funds. And generally, institutional funds around the world, super funds as well in Australia, would allocate maybe five percent of their capital to alternatives. And part of that is venture. If they want to, they don't have to. And why? Because it can produce a good return. The last two venture funds that I founded produced four times cash on cash and IRRs of over 40%. So they were good returns. IRRs, internal rate of return. Internal rate of return of 40%. So in a world where the stock markets all were doing sort of 15s and 20s. That was a good return. Yeah, Our current fund, the first fund of our, the new Evertree Ventures, the 2014 fund, that's showing, now we haven't given the money back yet, but all our investments are held at the last round, externally set round. We don't magically increase them. We do pull them down
0: if we don't think they're, they're right, but that's sitting at around a 30% IRR currently. All right. Can you actually measure the return before you actually exit well, you the can, company? Well, you can.
1: I mean, I mean you, you've got to also be honest and say you haven't given a dollar back yet, so don't yeah. get too full of yourself, you know. But if you track the valuation at the last round, the funding round, set by an external company, so let's say we invested in a company One of a good example, we invested in a company called Hot Doc four or five years ago, uh, which is a doctor booking, recalls, reminders, critical care platform run by two outstanding young founders and an $8 million valuation. And then about two and a half years, three years ago, someone came in and led a round of $35 million and we put more money in. So we then moved the valuation on our books from eight to 35. Because it was externally led by another right, right. investor, and just last week, another investor, external investor, has put ten million dollars into HotDoc at a hundred million valuation. Right, so but that
0: doesn't mean that if you sell out, your investors are going to get all that return. They will. Well, well yeah,
1: it? well, they won't get the hundred and ten million. They'll get our proportion of that. So, in the case of Hot Doc, we own about twenty percent of the company. So, roughly. If we, we wouldn't sell out of hot dog now, because it's a great company, you think it'll go a lot further. But if yeah. we if we did sell out at this current round, our investors would have made eight times their money over a five-year period, which would be a rate of return of around 46%. Yeah. Uh, now we think hot dog is actually growing and will go beyond 110 million. Another company we invested in many years ago called Canva. Canva we invested in around a $75 million round. We led the round in 2015. And just today it was announced that Canva's done around at Australian dollars equivalent, $8.7 billion.
0: Extraordinary company. Extraordinary. Mm. And, and, it is, and
1: it is, Mel, the founder, is an extraordinary woman, founder. She is literally uh, a unicorn in the sense of you don't find these people very Okay, often. well, while
0: we're talking about that particular company, mm. Canva, it's very well known to a lot of Australians yes. now. Unicorn, got to a billion dollars. yes. What is so special about them? Why did you invest? Well, I mean, it's a graphic design company online, isn't
1: it? Well, well, it's a tools company. so it provides graphic design tools and templates and photos and other objects that non-design people yeah. can use. It democratizes design in a way that no one's ever done before. Not Adobe, not Microsoft, not anyone. And Quite it,
0: extraordinary. It is absolutely really.
1: extraordinary. The level of, output you can create, as I'm a zero creative person, I can create things in Canva that look really good. I mean, I I shocked myself with my abilities (laughs) on Canva. No, seriously. And so you have this product set that democratizes design and production to, I think it's now 190 different languages all around the world, and people can not only do it for themselves, but they can do it for others. They can start to create designs, whether it's posters or ads or whatever it is, for other people, very low cost, freemium model, very low cost, and in a way that democratizes a skill set across the global population. Now, why Canva? Well, you only had to meet Mel, Melly Perkins with with Cliff, the co-founders, and you knew you were in the presence of someone special. When we first met them, Airtree just started. We'd, we'd not known them for the first two rounds they raised. Yeah,
0: so they had previous investments. They'd raised some money, yeah.
1: yeah, but Airtree wasn't around. I wish we were. <laughs> but uh, I remember distinctly uh, in our Paddington office meeting Melanie, and she just went through her vision, and she wanted to be and still wants to be bigger than Microsoft, bigger, well, bigger than Adobe, then Microsoft. She sees the Canva opportunity to grow significantly. And not in, not in just a dreamlike state, a very no. practical application of what she sees. And then you saw the numbers of people who were doing, now they weren't making any money in those days, revenue, but the not only the number of people coming and using the product each month, but the engagement, coming back and doing more and more designs. And so in our world, when you see a software product that not only has growing users, but the users are staying, they're not turning away, that's an extraordinary thing. So we, we thought... We were just so fortunate to have met Melanie.
0: Are you going to make a bunch of money out of that investment?
1: Yeah, I think we will. We will do very, very well. for but our, you're staying in there at the moment, obviously. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is not one that you can't see this peaking in its valuation anytime soon.
0: Yeah. You've also invested in some others that have become, you know, small household names. Prosper, I think, yes, is one of yes, them. yes. Tell us about some of those companies briefly that you've invested in and oh, why. Okay. Why do you back a founder?
1: So who do we back? Founders. So we back people who are passionate about wanting to do something different. So they've got this sense of they can create a different product that changes the world, the world within which they want to be, whether it's graphic design tools, whether it's lending for small businesses, whether it's doctor booking applications, whether it's 3D printing of cells, that they want to do something better than anyone else done before. They have a very strong knowledge about the sector. They haven't just woken up one morning and said, I think I'm going to be, you know, a rocket builder tomorrow. They understand the domain space in a deep way. They understand the opportunity in a deep way, and they can articulate exactly what it is they're going to create and why it will be different. So if you get that combination of passion, intellect, and analysis with an opportunity they've created, I think that's what you look for in the early stage.
0: Just a couple of the other companies that you've invested So,
1: Look, I mean, it's easy to talk about the ones like Pet Circle, which is an extraordinary company online, pet food and pet products. There are only three companies that do that well globally. Pet Circle is one of them. So
0: what, you order your your pets?
1: Pet food. Food and accessories online? Yeah, and it can come regularly. If you know that Fido needs food every five weeks and every five weeks magically the food will arrive. Yeah, yeah. It's run by an extraordinary CEO, Mike. He's done an extraordinary job of building a company, which is you know very low margins in retail generally. And it's a significant business. It's much, 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 much bigger than when we first invested. We're in there for the long haul. We think he's an outstanding founder. The space is large. I mentioned Hot Doc. There is uh, Prosper, which is the small lending space. Which, and that whole area has had a battering, but we think the guys there have done an extraordinary job of building. Again, a, a company that's offering lending to small businesses they couldn't get before. The banks had exited this space. They weren't providing loans to company to small businesses, unsecured loans to small businesses at this level. They just weren't there. So where do they get it? On their credit card? So this has provided a really useful tool and a great business.
0: Yeah. So in a sense, you are a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you're not building one business no. right now. You're no. helping others build several businesses. Yeah. I went through, look,
1: when I left Microsoft, for personal reasons. And I thought about what I wanted to do. Did I wanna go and run a company again? And I love the idea of a sort of a portfolio approach to my life that let me dabble in a few businesses, but also do other things. And that led me to venture capital, my first iteration, and then the second and now the, but then w- when I f- finished up NetUs, which is my previous venture company to Airtree. So this was in 2012, 13. I, I then thought again, do I wanna go and just build something again. And I felt I really enjoyed the variety of interactions you get as a venture capitalist. You're very blessed to spend time in your week with 10 or 20 companies run by extraordinary young founders doing crazy good things. So I love that more than I probably love the idea of building one thing.
0: What is your view of this? We talked about it very briefly early on, the landscape for tech and for really developing this space in Australia. And will it withstand the whims of politicians? Can it scale up?
1: Well, look, it's a very good question. You start from the premise that technology will change everything and we have a choice then as a country. Are are we just going to be a user of everybody else's technology or we create some of our own that we can export to others. And there is kind of a national beauty about having your own, but there's actually a a sort of financial and societal benefit. And my argument would be is if we don't get a fair cut of this sort of wave of technology companies growing, we'll have a demonstrably lower standard of living in Australia. There's just no question, you know, we are lucky that we've had companies like the Atlassians formed in Australia and the Cochlears before them and the ResMeds and the CSLs in in different forms of technology. And now the Canvas and the Pet Circles and the Prospers and the Culture Amps and the others. I mean, there are many others that that are doing very well. They are creating hundreds and thousands of jobs. They're exporting products globally. They're therefore paying a lot more taxes we'll come back to sort of internationals and taxes in a second, but they're paying taxes, they're paying employees, employees are earning good money, high earnings, they're spending in the community, and this is a virtuous cycle. So I think countries that have understood this, the United States has understood this, Israel understands this, have done very well. In the U.S. last year, about $86 billion was invested in venture capital in the U.S. alone. Of that, $56 billion was invested in California, and they are producing hundreds of of large companies that are producing net wealth to the country. And I think the problem in Australia is we have a political environment where it's uncool to talk about either innovation or technology. Yeah, which well, is
0: former Prime Minister
1: Malcolm Turnbull tried to talk about innovation. He tried to and he was right. He was 100% right on his strategy. Um and unfortunately the current leadership either doesn't understand technology or understands it and is afraid of Talking about it because I don't think it will resonate with someone in some location. And really the role of governments is to lead, not just to follow. And it is quite clear that the majority of great high paid jobs going forward in economies will be those that are in some way related to technology. So you have a choice. You can have a country which is full of low paid roles, where we source all our products overseas, or we take some of that pie to our own country and our own society.
0: So as an adjunct to that really is this whole thing about, you know, you said technology is, is really going to run economies in, yes. in that sense. Let's talk the disruption that is happening in business, in yes. economies, and yes. if people don't if countries, if economies yeah. don't get this, what are the opportunities from it, but also what are the risks if we don't take advantage? Well the opportunity
1: I think one of the great examples I, I remember distinctly you know so Amazon's been around since 1997 right and it's been exporting products to Australia since about 1998 um, obviously CDs and books and maybe books that's right yeah books and then CDs and DVDs and what have you and and by about the kind of mid2000s it was probably I'm guessing here but it was probably exporting close to a billion dollars of product into Australia okay? A wide range. And, and I think I'll get the date right, but somewhere around 2012 or 13, Amazon announced it was going to launch an Australian.au site. And at that point, you have all these big retailers saying, oh, now we're going to get ready for Amazon. Well, it was like, you know what they've been doing for literally 20 years. Why are you now reacting? So at the time that Amazon launches a .au, Everybody else's retail site in Australia, whether it's a Woolworths or a West Farmers or a Colt, were terrible. Now, why were they so bad? All you had to do was go www.amazon.com to have a look at what world-class looked like. But because they weren't on your doorstep, you didn't do anything about it. So we had this thing in Australia where many of our industries are oligopolies. They don't innovate on a global basis. They they only have to be as good as the schmuck next door. And so when someone like Amazon's doing something brilliant overseas, you could say, well, we're going to model that. They are the best overseas e-commerce. Let's do that here. So the, the downside is that we react too late. We therefore miss the opportunity. We don't create the companies. We don't create the jobs. The upside is Atlassian, good example. They got into developing team collaboration software early, post-university, in fact, uh, for Scott and Mike, and then have created this multi tens of billion dollar company that is growing fast, hit an all-time high at over $183 US. Extraordinary. The shares. So, yeah. So it's extraordinary. Employing
0: people. So,
1: thousands of people around the world, thousands of people in Australia. Extraordinary. So it's this bifurcate. You either, you either see where the world's going and you get on it early. You can't get on this thing late. This is the great anomaly that in some of the, the discussion is, let's wait to see what happens. By the time... It's happened somewhere else. You know, by the time a company in California launches a successful social media global offering, it's in Australia. An e-commerce, it's already in it. Australian consumers can be buying, they can yeah. be shipping products. So you don't have the the old days our Australian economy could sit back, look around the world and go, oh, we will do a bit of that. You can't do that anymore.
0: And yet a lot of our industries are still thinking that way. More generally, I just want your view fairly quickly, and then we're going to get yeah, back yeah, to yeah, your yeah, timeline. Yeah. The big exciting things in tech yep. in the world, I guess, really are cloud, data, AI, machine I think, learning. Yeah, look, I think,
1: I think the biggest disruptor both to product delivery but also to the way we think about society is AI, no question. Artificial intelligence, which is really machine learning, is going to impact our lives more than we understand. And the simple argument is that, particularly in in environments where the boundary conditions are quite clear. So I'll give you an example. In medical diagnosis, if we look at moles, moles or melanomas. Yeah, moles, moles okay. on your
0: face or your body.
1: Yeah, so that is understanding which mole is bad or good, at least from looking at it, is pattern recognition. That's all it is. It's pattern recognition. Software can do that better than any dermatologist today. The software can determine better than a dermatologist, whether that mole should be taken off or not. Bar none. And that goes, they'll go to radiology, that'll go to vital signs. So you can see that a chunk of medical diagnosis will go to software very, very quickly.
0: And those jobs of some of the best brilliant doctors Will will change.
1: Well, they'll change. They'll go from less diagnosis and more what is the therapeutic intervention? The treatment. What's a treatment? Yeah. And what the medical professionals get comfortable with, with is that part of what you think is your unique skill ain't really a skill. It's pattern recognition. Your skill will be with that diagnosis what is the right therapeutic intervention? Because that's still not clear. Now, you can see that applying across the board. Any job where the job is a binary application of a set of rules, that will go to software. So if your job is doing something the same, Through some boundary conditions, loan applications, gone. Contracts? (laughs) Gone. Accounting, gone. Audit, gone. Anything Meaning
0: computers will- I mean, we know accountants and lawyers are already outsourcing certain things and they're being done by machines. Are you saying that will just grow exponentially? Yes,
1: grow exponentially. It is- kind of weird that today so much money is spent in the law on things that are standard contracts, that really that you could have software building contracts with certain conditions being brought in, and it is happening, by the way, already happening, at a much lower price point. And so I think basically anything that is binary in what you're doing that requires a set of rules, if the rules can be effectively coded and you have a data set which is large enough to say that any variation has been accounted for, then the software is off. Yeah, so data is
0: really important too.
1: And the data and the way the data is tagged, and this thing about noise in the data and what have you. But the larger the data pools and the cleaner the data pools, the better the software will be. In the Melanoma case, a company that we've invested in out of Canada called MetaOptima has a data set of a million moles. Now, it's seen more than a million moles. Now, the best dermatologists in the world have probably seen ten or 20,000. Mm. Wow. Hmm.
0: So that has enormous implications for so does, jobs in the future. It
1: does. And what it means is that you have to think of higher order jobs, that the lower order jobs, whether it is this sort of just pattern execution, go away. And should go away because they're not, they're not that interesting in jobs, a lot of them. And how do you develop higher-order jobs? And also, how do you have jobs that serve useful purposes? A good example is having more people in aged care homes. We know that having more interaction in aged care homes helps the mental and physical health of people in those homes, of elderly people. Yeah, We don't have enough people in those homes because economically it doesn't make sense. Staff,
0: employees, carers, right. yeah. yeah.
1: So we need a model that says, okay, we've got these higher-order jobs data science, et cetera. They should pay more taxes. We're also going to have hire a whole bunch more aged care workers because we know for society that's a good thing. So it's not just about hire water. It's about re-architecting the economy. But on the basis a lot of these jobs down here will change and there'll be new jobs created, some that we create on an economic basis and some we create on a social basis.
0: You've spent your career basically in tech, promoting tech, loving tech, building. Yep. Uh, great you know software companies do you perhaps like stephen hawking have some negative oh, um, thoughts about where ai is going to take us
1: absolutely i think and
0: computer intelligence
1: i think there's a lot of discussion now about the ethics of artificial intelligence and about use of facial recognition particularly in china with their social credit system and as it should be by the way the thing i struggle with is that there will be ethical companies who will say we don't want to use ai and misuse ai but there'll be companies that will not worry and there'll be governments and there'll be security agencies that will not be beholden to a set of socially agreed ethics. So I think the cat's out of the bag a bit, to be but, honest.
0: But even more, is it slightly worrying or very worrying oh, very that worrying. computers will end up, will they end up smarter than us?
1: Oh, that's a long way away. General intelligence is a long way away and super intelligence is in further out. So I think that idea is is further out. But, you know, the idea of robot warriors is not that far out. We've got them today, they're called drones. But they happen to be flown by a guy sitting in a caravan in Arizona, now that could be as easily flown by software. So I think we get to artificial intelligence being weaponized quite quickly, and that is, that is frightening. And there is a weaponized in the weapons sense, and there's weaponized in the way it can be used against society, and the social credit idea in China is a very good example of that, and that's a terrible idea. The difficulty becomes who stops it, where, and how. And I think we had nuclear proliferation stop. Why did that work? Because it was relatively easy to stop large amounts of spending on nuclear programs. The reality in the AI space is you can have five guys in a room who have access to large data sets, and they can do some pretty damaging stuff. So it's not as easy to control as it was in the nuclear program age. So I am quite worried by it.
0: How did you come to work for Microsoft in what its heyday, really, what, the late 80s, yeah. early 90s? You You're only young.
1: Yeah, I, I was. So I was national marketing manager for NEC, which is a computer company. And I worked out that, fortuitously worked out that hardware was going to become a commodity and I didn't want to work in a commodity business. I wanted to work in a business where there's differentiation because only through differentiation do you get higher margins, higher margins, more profitable, more profitable, you get paid more. So it seemed a fairly simple economic argument. And so I started thinking about software companies and I was just really lucky that at that time, both Lotus and Microsoft were recruiting their managing directors. And Lotus, you know, Lotus One Two Three, the yeah. spreadsheets that m- most people would know. I remember know. that. You and I remember most that. people no, would who? That. Go, Google Docs. What are you talking yeah. about? And- yeah, I was interviewed to the Microsoft job and got it and started at Microsoft and had a company of, I don't know, 18, 20 people in Australia. And
0: You were running the company in Australia? Yep,
1: You were under 30? Yep. <laughs> and, how did that go? It uh, went really well. I think the thing at Microsoft was everyone, everyone was doing well, like every subsidiary was doing well. So I didn't measure myself on how we were doing year to year. I measured myself versus the other subsidiaries because that's a only fair metric. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. And was pleasing in my third year, which is my third year of running Australia, when when Bill asked me, in inverted commas, to go to America to do a to run a product group. Uh, we were awarded the most successful subsidiary in Microsoft globally by Bill. And I thought that's it. That's that. So that shows we've done a not just a yes. Of course, everyone in Microsoft had grown, but we had grown more and in better ways than any other subsidiary around the world, including my arch rivals in France and the UK. So that was really good. And then I, I went to work for, for Bill in, in the United States for a few years.
0: Yeah. So you ran what they called what? The Work Communication work group, group. Work
1: group. Yeah. So Work Group was a team of about 500 software engineers. Wow. Um, and our job was to build the software that you'd think of now as Exchange or Outlook.
0: Love Outlook. I hate to say, I still love email.
1: <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'm an email person. I think, I think for all the Slack channels, everything email has a very useful purpose. Yeah, so that was our job, and that was in the early days of personal computer-based email because it's still IBM and mainframe email. So it was we had to build communication gateways to other s- systems, and yeah, it was an exciting and difficult time because it wasn't an area of Microsoft had natural advantage. So we were coming from behind, and so we were frantically trying to build. Uh, new products to accelerate our presence in the market. Yeah, it was good.
0: So how did you go running that group in the American, the, the big I struggled culture? a lot,
1: to be honest. Bill had said to me, this is the hardest job in the company when he gave it to me. Thanks very much. I was a software developer like early on, as but I hadn't written a line of code for 10 or 12 years. And I think two things happened. One, I, I didn't feel a natural fit for the role, and I don't, I don't inherently don't have much confidence in myself. I've got a very low internal self-validation. I always have a very low, low level of self-love. And so I felt really a fish out of water. I felt I was an imposter. I didn't feel I was good enough to be there. And I think it probably impacted my performance. I mean, you know, I could say the other side, I could say, oh, well, you know, we grew revenues 3X in two years, which we did. We grew our market share 3X in two years. I'm a hero. Yeah, I, I wasn't. We did do well, but I always felt... I always felt hamstrung by my feeling I wasn't good enough for the role. I didn't feel I was as good as some of them, my peers. And I felt I didn't have the perfect skill set for the role. I think mm-hmm. someone who runs a product group should have come from a deep product development background. Yeah. And I didn't have that.
0: What was it like working so closely with Bill Gates, who's obviously been, you know, he's a major force yes. in the world oh, well, and, was, and yeah. certainly changed tack. But in those days he was pretty ruthless, pretty relentless, he, pretty he,
1: business-driven. Look, he's he's very, very, very bright. Like he's super high Q with a photographic memory. So you've got to remember those two things. <laughs> so, you know, he will remember. Darn it. <laughs> he'll remember a chart you showed him three years ago. And the numbers on that chart. So people talk about him being ruthless. He was not very well, accepting. Tough, I suppose. He, tough. He,
0: he got the reputation for being you, ruthless. You, you I'm couldn't not make sure shit that's up.
1: It's true. You had to think stuff through. You had to be precise. You had to be honest. And if you thought things through, if you were precise and honest, he never, ever, in my time working with people, ever. I never was yelled at. I was never had a difficult conversation with him, because I knew my stuff. You know, you'd go to a meeting and you'd be presenting your plan, whether it was for Microsoft Australia or for WorkGroup Division, and you'd be Bill and the rest of the executive committee, and they would just hammer you with questions for hours. And if you knew what you were doing and you knew your product or your company or your
0: And you had perhaps evidence or yeah, data you, you, to you, back you and up.
1: You, you, and you didn't make stuff up, then you're fine. And, and in fact, even if things go and the, the biggest lesson from Bill yeah. was first you do your do your and a lot of Australians. Australian companies don't do that. They they, Do what? They don't plan. They'll plan a little bit and then off we go. Whereas Bill was very much about get the right data set, think it really through, think of all the things that can go wrong and then move forward. Now, if you move forward and something went wrong, you rarely got in trouble because they said, okay, well, what in our assumption set was wrong? It would be this very honest discussion about, well, we thought this would happen. It didn't happen. Well, then- Let's do something else. Now, the good news about if you've planned well is that when something goes wrong, you know exactly what caused that issue and you know what you can do.
0: And it might be just a little exactly. shift exactly. rather than a massive Exactly. Shift. And if you haven't
1: done the right planning up front and it goes wrong, you've got no idea what to do. And so that's when people got in trouble with Bill was either they made stuff up, they sort of made statements that weren't backed by facts, they weren't very bright and then they couldn't keep up with the intellectual sort of the speed, the cadence of questions—yeah, that got in trouble. Or they didn't learn the lesson. You know, they made the same mistake again. That's not—that wasn't tolerated.
0: How did you find him? I mean, you, you're telling these lessons, but what did you think of him? Is he?
1: Oh, he—he he was the most influential. Well, you know, you say Bill Gates was the influential person in your life. They go, oh yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Um, <laughs> but you know, but he was because he—he he taught me how to think. Crisply about things and how to unpack complex issues into ways that you could start to solve them. To net to always be inquisitive, to never be satisfied with an answer. I mean, so I learned so much, from, and also about philanthropy. I learned a lot about how I have since been with being with Mike. because I've talked talked about and invested in philanthropy. Yeah. So yeah, he was seminal, and changing my life. And it was interesting because he came seminal. Oh, absolutely. I had worked for someone prior to Bill, who was the, you know, if you had to sort of recruit someone to be the asshole screaming older white man CEO, he was the guy. You know, violent, aggressive, womanizing, you know, the boys club. I mean, and that was the environment I was in. And I was like, I just, I remember telling my wife I was just so upset because I thought, well, this is obviously what being a leader in business is about. I just, it's destroying me. And I was 28 years of age. So then, meeting Bill and working for him, where it was all about the intellectual pursuit, it was all about building the best products, it was all about finding the right answers. And it, yes, there are episodes where Bill's screened to people, of course he's, but because you didn't think something through, not because you were having an emotional outburst or, you know, and it wasn't a boys' club. And that, it changed the world for me and showed me there was a different way.
0: In part two of my chat next week with venture capitalist Daniel Petrie, he speaks candidly about the impact on his life and career of the death of his only sister and how he's tried to be a better, more well-rounded and giving human being and not be all consumed by business. So join me next week on Build It, They'll Come. And I'd love you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts which helps others find us. And please subscribe and share it with your friends and your networks. See you next week.